you ever had this experience where you're going to a movie and you're standing in line and you're waiting to get into this film you really wanted to see and this line of folks is coming out of the movie and some obnoxious person coming out of the movie says to you, can you believe she dies at the end of the story? Well, you know, I mean, at that point, you might as well just see another movie, right? I mean, it ruins everything. We like to be held in suspense, don't we? Whether it's the books we read or the movies we see, we like to be on the edge of our seat, wondering how in the world is this going to work out in the end. Well, you can ruin a good book or a good movie by revealing the ending. But in the Bible, it is the ending that is one of the most important parts of the Bible. You see, it's not the beginning of the Bible that gives us hope and endurance and strength for living. It's knowing the end of the story that helps us to go through tribulations and persecutions. We know the end of the story. You just read it today from Revelation 22. And it is that end of the story that allowed the Christian church to endure. We cannot imagine the persecutions that the early church went through. Christians were thrown to the lions Christians were tortured in the Roman Colosseums, but, but Christians knew the end of the story, right? Emperors like Nero and Domitian tried to stamp out the church through violence in the early years, but Christians knew the end of the story, didn't they? And finally, in the end, Christians knew that when they died, they didn't die, But they lived again in a new Jerusalem, a new city that God was building for his people. And so with that, Christians took away the only power that the Romans had, which is the fear of death. They didn't fear death because they knew the end of the story. Kings and emperors wielded power against the church. But guess what? We know that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. We know that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we know the end of the story, that it is the Lamb of God who will sit upon the throne on the last day, not any earthly ruler. Guess what? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And that same book of Revelation that unfolds that narrative of hope is what we've been reading the last few weeks, is knowing the end of the story that helps us to endure the here and the now. So this this sermon is about hope, and first of all, it's knowing the hope from Revelation. Uh, Secondly, it's living into that hope, and thirdly, it's receiving that hope. How do we get it? How do we get it? So first of all, knowing the hope of Revelation 22. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be helpful to turn there right now. Uh, We're in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, and what we're looking at in chapter 22 is the way God intends the world to be at the end of this age, at the close of this time. Last week in 21.5, he promised this. He said, behold, I am making all things new. Well, here's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth as God intends it to be, okay? That's what we're looking at today. And what God is really doing there is, is he is undoing the curse of Genesis 3. All of Revelation 22 should be echoes of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because what God is doing is he is bringing peace back to his world. Remember how it all started? Remember that God created us on the sixth day. He imprinted us with his image and likeness. 
He said, man, this is very good. I love these people. And remember, we failed to live into God's love, right? Instead of living for God, we disobeyed God. And we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, all creation became broken, right? In fact, sin and death came in at that point. Cancer and suffering and plagues and violence and war and all the tribulations that we endure yet today came in Genesis 3 in the fall of mankind. The proper way to interpret Genesis or Revelation 22 is that God is undoing the mess that we made for ourselves. Look at verse 1. He's undoing the mess. The angel showed John a river in this new city that God is creating. And it is the river of the water of life. Look at that. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Now think back to Genesis. This is an echo, right? An echo. There was a river in Eden, right? Ran right through the garden. Here is a better river, though, at the end of time. Because this river gives life to the world. And and it provides all that we need. And it will never run out because it comes from the throne of God and from the Lamb. God is providing everything we need in the new city. Look at verse 2, an undoing yet again of Genesis. But this time, instead of two people in a garden, we've got many people in a city. Look at verse 2. These living waters are flowing right through the city, right in a major boulevard of a city. Why a city? Well, I think it's because God loves people. He loves you and he loves me. Remember just two people in the garden in a country setting? This is a bunch of people in a big old city because he loves us. We're imprinted with his image. And it says in in Revelation that this great city will house a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation across the world. Everyone who has come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, they'll be welcomed in this city by God himself. He loves us that much. So God is building a city to undo the curse of of, uh, Genesis in the uh, Garden of Eden. And remember, there were fruit trees in that garden, right? Well, there are fruit trees in this city, right? But the trees that we met in Eden were, one, a tree of life, two, a tree that led to death, that led to a broken relationship with God. If you look at verse 2 of today's reading, you'll see that these are only trees of life. There are no more trees of death, no death, no sickness, no pain, no suffering. The new city that God is building is rid of all that stuff. And look at verse 2. These trees are life-giving and abundantly fruitful. Remember one of the curses of of Genesis Genesis chapter 3 was that God said to Adam, You ate of that tree I told you not to eat of, Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. And you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God cursed the ground in that way. And our work is sometimes fruitless. And sometimes we make little progress. But in the new Jerusalem, the new city, there will be abundant fruit and and abundant blessings. Our work will become good again. And remember, violence came into the world through Genesis 3. Well, God is undoing that too. Look at 22.3. The leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. That's the old promise that God gave Isaiah in chapter 11. That there will come a time when the lion shall dwell with the lamb. 
And God promises that on that day there will be no one who hurts or destroys one another on my holy mountain because the whole creation will be full of a knowledge of me like the waters covering the sea. That's the promise. Here's the fulfillment in 22.3. The leaves shall be for the healing of the nations. In verse 3, we learn that nothing is accursed in God's new city in heaven. And remember, they, in Genesis 3.8, Adam and Eve would enjoy visitations from God. It says that he would come alongside them in the cool of the day and walk with them. And then I guess he went back wherever God goes. But they had temporary visitations from God. Here, we get to see the face of God. Look at verse 4. They will see God's face. That is intimacy with God. In fact, in the Old Testament, because of our sin, because of the curse of Genesis, it says that anyone who sees the face of God will die. Here, because of the work of Jesus, we can see God face to face. Not only that, verse 4 tells us that we will have the mark of God, the name of God, written on our foreheads. Okay, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, the priests in the temple could meet God face to face on one day of the year called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And he could meet God face to face and he would write Yahweh across his forehead so that he would be marked by God and he would be acceptable to God. In this chapter, it says that we will all bear the mark of God. We'll not just visit him one day of the year. We'll be able to hang out with him all the time. And because of what Christ did, we are now acceptable and loved by God. Now look at verse 5. The undoing of the curse goes on. There will be no light in this city uh, except for the light of God. They won't need the sun or the moon. They won't need artificial lamps to light because God's love and God's light will surround all of his creatures. And at the end of that verse 5, it says, They, meaning the redeemed saints of God, shall reign with God on thrones forever. Now, can you imagine how exciting that would be for the early church undergoing all the tribulation that they had to face? This gave them hope for living. I mean, think about it. If God provides your every need through his nourishing grace, if you're freed from sin and death, if you're marked as his own forever, if you're enveloped by his light and his life, if you're promoted to sit on thrones and rule with the Most High God, what can Rome do to us? What can Rome do to us? And as you look at a crumbling society around you, you should know the end of the story allows you to ask that same question. What can this world do to me? I know the end of the story. In Psalm 27, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Who do we have to fear, church? We know the end of the story. We've been rescued by God. And look at the beautiful symmetry of the message. We have a tree in the garden that caused us to be cursed and fallen out of communion with God. We have a tree in the middle of time called the tree of Calvary, upon which Jesus died to restore us. He took the curse on himself so that it could be relieved from us. And then there's the tree at the end of time that speaks of everlasting life, of splendid fruitfulness for God's people, and the healing of the nations. That's the story of salvation. Live the story, my friends. Look at the end of the story and find courage to meet the days ahead. You know, there's an old saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good. 
Uh, some liberal theologian, I'm sure, said that years ago. Because it just ain't true. That is not the Bible. In fact, Colossians 3.2 says, Keep your mind fixed on the things of heaven that are above, not on the things of this earth. Because here's the reality. The most effective Christians I have ever known have been Christians who are heavenly minded, who keep their minds fixed on the promises of God. William Wilberforce, one of the great evangelicals of the Anglican Church, always had his mind fixed on heaven. And because he knew that he was going to be liberated in heaven, he believed in the liberation of mankind here on earth. And he was one of the major promoters of the abolition of slavery in England. And before he died, he saw slavery abolished because he was heavenly minded. You see, the best citizens on this earth are citizens who know that their true citizenship is in heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. And if you embrace that, then you're going to want to bring a little heaven to this earth. Now, a word of application. Today, this year is an election year. And many of you are worried right now because we don't have any really good candidates. Or maybe you're thinking if she wins or he wins, then America is going to go down the tubes. Well, let me tell you, you should not worry. Jesus is king. He is Lord. Barack Obama thinks he's president, but Jesus rules, okay? So you can be involved in politics. In fact, if you're a good citizen, you should try and affect the citizenship here. But you shouldn't worry about it. Jesus has it in control. The next thing, if you're a citizen of heaven, you should be an ambassador of peace and love and mercy here. Because God has made peace with you, because you know his love and are accepted by him, because you felt his mercy given to you under the weight of the cross, you should be bearing peace and love and mercy to everybody you meet. Ambassadors for Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said, in The Weight of Glory, he said, there is no one you've ever met who is a mere mortal. Think about that. The girl at the checkout stand at Publix or the guy who bags your groceries, they are immortal beings who need to know the love and the mercy of God so that they can have a home in that celestial city at the end of time. You're an ambassador. We should have a sense of divine acceptance as well. If we are children of the new kingdom yet to come, we get to see God face to face. We get his name on our foreheads. Therefore, all your striving to make a name for yourself should be let go. You know, in Genesis 11, it tells the story of a people who wanted to make a city for themselves. And they built a high tower up to heaven. It was the Tower of Babel. And it says in that text that they wanted to be like God and make a name for themselves. How many of us in our businesses think that if we can achieve, we'll make a name for ourselves? Or if we can do really well in school, then we'll make a name for ourselves. Or if we do really well in athletics, we will make a name for ourselves. And so we get exhausted. We try and work and worry. My friends, don't go around bearing the mark of yourself on your forehead. Bear the mark of God's love and acceptance. Don't worry about making a name for yourself. Worry about honoring the one whose name has already marked you by love and forgiveness. So finally, if we don't know if we're a citizen in heaven or not, how do we get there? Well, in chapter 22, verse 17, we're given the answer. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears come. 
Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires water of life without price come. You see, it's free. Jesus is free. Citizenship in heaven is free. Jesus paved the way on the cross for you. He was cursed so that we, our curse, would be removed. He was separated from God that we might be in the nearer presence of God in the end of time. He suffered the darkness of Calvary so that we might be embraced by the light and love of God. He bore the crown of thorns on his forehead so that you can bear the name of God on yours. He bore unbearable thirst on the cross so that you might drink lavishly from the springs of living water that flow from the throne and from the Lamb. He paid it all. And his invitation in Revelation 22 is come. Come to me. And if you've already come to him and you're bent up with anxiety and worry about the immorality of America or the way the elections are going or wars or politics or sickness or anything else, draw strength from the end of the story. You know the end. You know that God reigns. Paul in Romans 8.18 said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing of the glories yet to be revealed to us. There was a bishop several years ago who came to visit a congregation like our bishop will next week. And he spoke to the people being confirmed and brought into the life of the church. And there's this one woman who grew up fundamentalist Christian. And she was all concerned about amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. And how God's going to work out all the details in the end. And so she asked the bishop the question. She said, as Anglicans, are we premillennialist or postmillennialist? Talking about the thousand-year reign. And the bishop said, my dear woman, we are pretty much panmillennialist. And she looked at the bishop and she said, what in the world is a panmillennialist? And the bishop said, my dear, when Jesus is Lord of creation, all things are going to pan out in the end. <laughs> we know the end of the story. Let it shape your life and give you courage. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.